Thank you, Pastor Kevin. It's good to be back with you. What a passage in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Daniel 11 may be tough. Revelation chapter 12 is, is uh, kind of, what is that all about? What are all those pictures? What are all those things? What does that mean? Um, and thankfully, I'm not preaching on that, but that is the background to some of what is happening at the end of uh, what we'll see in uh, chapter 11 here. When I was a young missionary, I was sent to Zambia and I taught at the Theological College of Central Africa and my specialty was uh, systematic theology and Old Testament. Systematic theology is the attempt, and you can go to the next slide, systematic theology is the attempt to take all the different things that the scripture says about one particular kind of uh, thought and put it systematically together so that we can understand it. So as we look at prophecy and as we look at the end times, uh, systematic theology says we can categorize that in basically four different ways. Uh, we can look at it as uh, dispensational premillennialism, and that's basically that God works in different ways in different dispensations. And uh, people who uh, follow this are looking for Christ to return, uh, and then the tribulation will take place. Some people say, well, a little bit of a shift on that, uh, not uh, dispensational premillennialism, but historic premillennialism. That God is working through history, and the things that we see in prophecy will work its way out in history. And people that believe in this normally see that Christ will return, and then the tribulation, uh, sorry, that the tribulation will take place, and then Christ will return. A third major area of systematic theology for eschatology is postmillennialism. Postmillennialism basically says that things are going to get better and better and better, and as things get better, that will bring the return of Christ. There aren't too many postmillennialists alive today or who follow this particular one after the Second World War, and as they see what's happening in the world, things are not getting better and better and better. They're getting worse. Or there's the fourth area of amillennialism, which basically says, where it talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ, that's the millennium, uh, we see that as a spiritual thing. And in the, in the spiritual aspect, Christ is already in his kingdom and Christ is already working things out. Uh, so there's no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. So when I uh, went to the theological college and I taught this to my students, I gave them three assignments. The first assignment was read uh, the book, The Meaning of the Millennium. In The Meaning of the Millennium, all these four different eschatological positions are laid out, and then each one who presents it critiques the other one. So a book report on what do these four different uh, systems mean, and uh, what are the strengths and weaknesses of it. And then the next assignment I gave them was to do an exe exegesis on the Olivet Discourse, on Matthew chapter 24. Well, if you read Matthew chapter 24, it's a little bit like Revelation 12 and a little bit like the passage that we're looking at this morning. There's all kinds of things in there and uh, hard things to understand. And as uh, the assignment got closer, I don't know about you that are in university, I don't know if you prolong doing your assignments, but uh, my students waited to about the week before and then they would start trickling into the office and they said, oh, Mr. Russell, this is hard. I don't understand this. How can this possibly work? Um, I, I just can't, I've, I've looked at it and I don't understand, and I would say, you pass. That was basically the purpose of that assignment, is that eschatology and putting all these pieces together is very hard. It's very difficult. But in that, in that course, I also wanted them to actually leave the course with an understanding. So their final paper was, what do you believe and why do you believe what you believe? What we want to look at this morning is not systematic theology. There's all kinds of passages that overlap 
and talk about the kinds of things that we'll be looking at this morning, but we want to look at biblical theology. And biblical theology is what you do when you, when you preach and you exegesis the text. You take what the text says and you allow it to speak and see what is the text saying about the particular topic that this particular chapter is speaking on. Eisegesis is when we take things from other parts and, and bring it into the text. But exegesis is saying, what is Daniel saying or what is Daniel understanding in this particular vision? So just to remind you that the passage in Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is basically one piece. Uh, Daniel chapter 10 is the introduction to the vision. Daniel chapter 11, which you've got the first half of last week by Pastor, uh, Pastor Kevin, is the vision up until the first three verses of chapter 12. And then chap the end of chapter 12 is the aftermath, or it's the prologue of the vision. What is the summary? What are the things of, of how Daniel is going to, to close this up? The key to this understanding of this vision is the chastening of Israel. Because of their idolatry, because of their sin, because of their disobedience. And that's why Daniel is in Babylon in the first place. Is God said, I've had enough of your disobedience. I've had enough of your turning your back on me. You're going into captivity. And the Babylonians came in and took, uh, took uh, Daniel and his friends and others into captivity into Babylon. But Daniel thought, as he was reading the scriptures, as you saw in chapter 9, that the time of captivity was going to be for 70 years. And the Daniel was looking at uh, his calendar and said, uh, 70 years is up. And the first wave of people went back into the promised land, about 40,000. And Daniel says, that's not very many, but Lord, what's going on? And then that's why God gave him this particular vision. The messenger has come to clarify for Daniel that the chastening of the people of God isn't over. That 70 years wasn't the end of it, Daniel. There is chastening that is to come. It's going to go on and it's going to go on. The oppression that the people of God are going to experience through the Persians and through the Greeks and through the Roman Empire who are opposing the land or opposing the people, that will continue. So the key verse for this particular vision and for the passage this morning is found in verse 35. So I hope you have your Bibles and I hope you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Verse 35 says, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it, is still awaits, for it still awaits the appointed time. The trouble will be until the time of the end. There will be a continued chastening, Daniel. It's not the end when the 70 years is complete. I am going to continue to purify my people. I am going to continue to bring them back. I'm going to make them white. I'm going to refine them in the fire. I'm going to do these things to them until they come back to me, until they acknowledge me and, and who I am. Now, Pastor Kevin, last week, asked, I see I listened to the sermon. I know what you were asked to do. You were given some homework. We're not going to ask for a show of hands, but I hope you did your homework. I hope you looked into the history of the first part of that uh, first part of chapter 11 and that you have a good framework for where we're going to continue on today. In chapter, verse, chapter 11, verse 2, basically we had the four kings of Persia mentioned. And the emphasis is on Hazarias, King Xerxes, the Persian king. And then in verses 3 to 9, we have the Greek empire. 
We have Alexander the Great, and we have his four generals who took over after, after he died. And uh, out of that, we have the Seleucid Empire, and we have the, Ptol uh, the Ptolemies, one in the north of Israel and one in the south in Egypt. And then in verses 10 to 11, you have the kings of the north and the kings of the south in this 200-year period where they're fighting against each other. And basically, the main king in this particular part of the, of the passage is Antiochus the Great. So that's where we came up to at the end of last week. And where we start today is at verse 21. And verse 21 uh, has, to deal, has to deal with Antiochus IV, known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, verse 21 says that he was a vile person. And this is the same king that we talked about last time I was here a month ago, who oppressed the people of God, who slaughtered them uh, in, 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 in Jerusalem and around the temple, and desecrated the temple, and devastated the Jews, the people, their temple, and their worship. So we've seen a little bit about that in Daniel chapter 8. And one of the things that prophecy does is it, it lays the passages on top of each other. And some things are common and sometimes new detail is given. And sometimes it's hard to figure out where are the different pieces and how do they fit. But we saw this line by line fulfillment of the history fulfilled in this particular chapter. And that's what your challenge was, was for your homework. Was to look at the history and to try and bring those pieces together. And the amazing thing is that as you look at this line by line by line, it's all fulfilled in history. It's accurate down to the very details that Daniel was given in this particular vision. We can have confidence in the word of God. We can have confidence that when Daniel received this prophecy, that he received a prophecy and it was accurate in its detail and it was accurate in how God was going to work out his plan in history. And because we know that it is accurate all the way through up to this point, we can then depend on what's going to happen in verses 36 to 45, which still has not happened. That's a future prophecy that still has to take place, and we'll look at that in a second. But we can be sure that if the first part of this chapter was fulfilled line by line historically, that God will also fulfill the remaining verses of this vision from 36 to 45. Verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And as you know, and as we mentioned before, Antiochus Epiphanes came to the throne. He came to it illegitimately. He came to it by murder. He came to it by a variety of different things, by promises, by bribery. And... Uh, and he, he took the throne, which rightfully was not his. His title, Epiphanes, means illustrious. And as we told you a month ago, some called him Epimenes, which means madman. And that's truly what the scripture is saying, is that he was a contemptible person. He was a madman. Verse 22, but as he is king, he is going to go to war. Verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant. And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Antiochus Epiphanes is going to attempt a treaty with the king of the south. 
There was the battle going on back and forth in, in, in the previous verses of this particular chapter. And now Antiochus, who takes the throne, is going to say, let's have a peace treaty. Let's get along. But this is going to fail. It's not going to work. And there's going to be a great battle, but it's not going to change the balance of power. He's going to go to war. There really is not a winner. And basically, people are going to go back and uh, they're going to just remain where they were. There was no winner. Sort of like the struggle that we have going on right now with Russia and Ukraine. Um, I'm not really up on all that history that's going on presently, but it looks like there's no winner. It's just sort of going back and forth a little bit. Just like Epiphanes, he attacked Egypt and he didn't win. Antiochus Epiphanes carried the feud between the dynasties. He carried it on. Um, during this particular period that had been going on for 200 years. But he pretended friendship with the king of the south to catch them off guard. Verse uh, 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Uh, like Robin Hood. Uh, he steals from the rich and gives to the poor. So to try and solidify his kingdom, to try and, and make things more secure, he takes the wealth that he's gained from, from the different battles and he spreads it around. And he tries to make friends that way and, and tries to get people to, to trust him by, by sharing the wealth. And if he sees that there's a stronghold, if he sees that there's a group that's, that's sort of building up, he moves against them and he tears them down. So he's building a power base. Um, and then he has another war with Egypt, with the king of the south, verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceeding great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be delivered against him. Egypt lost because the counselors of the king plotted against him. Verse, uh, the next verse, verse uh, 26, even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. So the reason why Antiochus won was that his, the troops of the south, the king's troops, the Ptolemies, they worked against the king. So Antiochus was able to, to, uh, to sort of have, have the battle won because of the uh, intrigue that was going on in the south. Verse 27, And as for the two kings with hearts shall be bent on doing evil, they shall speak lies at the same table, but no one avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. Both kings sit at the table. They're trying to work out a treaty, just like people do today. And how many peace treaties last? Probably hardly any. Most of them are broken. All of them are broken. They make promises to each other as they sit at the table. And uh, they intend to keep them, but, uh, but they're not really going to keep them. God has a plan. And he's working through these events in history. Verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. He comes back from Egypt and he goes to the land of Israel, and he takes out his frustrations with Israel. He wasn't able to win. 
And so he turns his, his frustrations upon Israel and he desecrates the, the, the land. He marches in, into Jerusalem. He sacks the city. He kills thousands of, of Jews. And basically he vents upon Israel. And then the next verse, at, that, uh, at the time appointed, verse 29, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. I don't know how many of you like the Cowboys and Indian movies. You probably haven't seen them because they're old, uh, and I'm old, so that's why I know about the Cowboys and Indians. But the Cowboys and Indians are having a battle on the screen, and uh, it looks like you know the Cowboys are, are going to lose. And then all of a sudden you hear the, the trumpet of the cavalry coming. And the cavalry comes over the hill and everything is saved. Well, that's what's happening here in verse 30. But it's not the cavalry that's coming, it's the Roman fleet. You see, the king of the south, the Ptolemies, are sick of what Antiochus Epiphanes has been doing. They're sick and tired of him coming down to the south and waging war and not really winning and then going back and then coming back again. So they say, Rome, will you help? Will you help us? And Rome says, sure. And so they sent their ships to help. Verse uh, 30, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces, uh, force, forces them sorry, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. Now Antiochus is really frustrated because they had pleaded for the Roman fleet to come and, and, and Antiochus knew he couldn't win the battle with the Romans there. He goes back with his tails between the legs and he says, I got to do something. So he puts guards around the temple and as he puts guards around the temple, he keeps the people away. And then he says, you are now Greek. You need to do things as Greeks do it. You need to wear Greek clothes. You need to speak the Greek language. Um, and on a given Sabbath day, he uh, slaughtered the children and the women. And this is where the history tells us that almost 100,000 Jews were killed by Antiochus, um, the madman. Um, he enforces the, the Greek customs upon the people, and then he desecrates the temple. Um, he brings into the temple a, a, a copy of the statue of Zeus. And he says, you must worship Zeus. You cannot worship your god anymore. And then he takes a pig and he slays it on the altar and the juices that run out. Uh, he, he sprinkles that throughout the temple. And as you know, uh, pigs are, are uh, an, an unclean animal. So that means that it's no longer a holy place. So the Jews can't go there. And then he forces the priests to eat the pork that has been roasted. And this is the abomination of desolation. And he takes it all out on God's people. Verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Not all of the Jews stood their ground. Some said, we'll follow after what you say. So you have apostate Jews who help him in, his, in what he's trying to do. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. People that really know God resisted. And as they resisted, they suffered the consequences. And then verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand through for some, uh, 
though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. An angel says to, to Daniel, if you think the 70 years are all that there's going to be, you've missed the point. After the 70 years, there's another purging that's coming. There's still refining that needs to take place. The people still need to be turned white in the heat of, of, of God's judgment. And that judgment is going to come. The Persian king dominated the land. Uh, the Babylonians had taken you into captivity. Alexander the Great dominated the land. Um, and, uh, and all these things have, have taken place. And Antiochus Epiphanes continues that. And finally, he comes to this place of desecration, which is beyond belief. And, and as I said, thousands and thousands died. But the scripture says, but there was a little hope. And it's interesting how God, in the midst of all of this, gives these little details just to, you know, again, to, to encourage us and to show us how true his word is. Uh, the little hope came from the Hasidians. These were Jews who stood for the law. And the leader of these Jews was Judas Maccabeus. And you can read this history in 1 Maccabees uh, chapter 2. Um, we don't accept that as, as canonical. That's not inspired literature, but it is historic literature. And if you find it, it's in the Roman Catholic Bible, but you can also find it on the internet. So there was this group of Hasidian Jews that resisted. And there was that little bit of hope. But verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it, is, for it still awaits the appointed time. Why? To test the people of God, to purge the people of God, to make them white, to bring them back to himself. God says the reason for all of this is that I love my people and I want them to return to me. As the promise of the Messiah is coming, I want them to follow, and I want them to follow the Messiah. Nothing drives people to God like suffering. It said that in the foxholes of uh, the First World War, there was no atheists. Because when you are facing death and when you are facing this kind of trouble and tribulation, everyone looks up. Everyone looks straight up to whatever God they're worshiping. And that's what trouble, and that's what persecution, and that's what these things, these things bring. And then as we come to verse 36, we come to a gap in the story. And between verse 35 and verse 36, there is a period of time uh, where before we get to the final chastening of Israel, there is a space. And the best way to try and give you a picture of this is if you've ever been out west or if you've ever been to some other places and you look at the mountains, as you look at the mountains, you see two peaks and they look like they're right together. Uh, they look like they're beside each other, right close up. But as you come closer to the mountain chain, you see that there's a great distance between the two peaks. And between verse 35 and verse 36 of this particular chapter, there is a great distance. There's a great period of time. And this is not unusual in prophecy, that in the midst of a passage, it's talking about this particular period of history, and then there's a gap, and then it picks up at another particular period of history. And Jesus himself did this for us. In, uh, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to the temple. And as he went to the temple, he asked for the scroll. 
And he got the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolled the scroll and he started to read the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And this is what it said. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives or, and release uh, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops and he closes up the scroll and he says, today this is fulfilled in your midst. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, Jesus stopped reading mid-sentence. The sentence really says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And if Jesus had continued to read and then say, this is fulfilled today in your midst, he would have brought the end of the world. But Jesus knew that the day of vengeance of our God was still to come. So he stops reading in the middle of that particular prophecy and he says, up until this point, up until that word, mid-sentence, this is fulfilled in your healing, in your hearing. The day of the vengeance of our God hasn't been fulfilled yet, so he didn't read it. And so we have that here in this particular chapter. At the end of verse 35, we're basically done with Antiochus Epiphanes. He's important. He's the historical figure. He's the one that we can see um, as, as all the things up to this point being fulfilled by him. But he is the preview of another king still to come. The other king is the Antichrist. And this is why so much space is given to him in descri describing uh, his career and his activities. Because he is an evil man. He is a vile man. But he is a symbol of what the Antichrist is going to be like. He prefigures the ultimate man, the ultimate Antichrist. Um, I don't know if you like to watch movies. I don't know if in this Baptist church if you can watch movies. When I grew up in my Baptist church, um, we couldn't drink. Show, what, couldn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with any girls that do. Um, I didn't know what a movie was until I was about 16. Went to see Star Wars. That was my first movie. Started off with a good one. It's been kind of downhill since then. But Antiochus is the trailer. If you're anxious or you're excited or you've already seen Barbie or you've already seen Oppenheimer, you've seen the trailer. Now the movie's there, the main show, the feature. And Antiochus is a trailer. He's just a pre-runner. He's just to you know, give you an, an understanding of what the Antichrist is going to be like. But the main feature is still to come. And the main feature here begins in verse 36, verses 36 to 45. The final Antichrist has come. And this is the part of the statue that, uh, that Daniel interprets for King Nebuchadnezzar where we get down to the feet and the toes and the clay and the Roman Empire. And the Antichrist comes from that particular Roman Empire. And I give credit here to John MacArthur for the little bit of a breakdown that, that he gives for this remaining verses. He says, we can see what the Antichrist is like by his character in these verses. His character, uh, verse uh, 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself. And John MacArthur says, here you see prerogative. He makes all the decisions himself. He does according to his own will. He's an absolute dictator. There's no one that's going to tell him what to do. He's making all the choices himself. He rules by his own will. And secondly, and magnifies himself above every god. He is proud. 
Antiochus was a proud man, but nothing like the Antichrist will be. The Antichrist puts himself above every god. Antiochus didn't do that. Antiochus worshiped Zeus as he brought him into the temple. But the Antichrist says, I am the greatest. I am the best. I am, you know, and he's proud and he's linked directly to Satan. And then, and he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He is profane. He has his prerogative, he's proud, and he's profane. He speaks blasphemies which are unprecedented. He speaks with the mouth of hell itself. The Hebrew here says that he speaks astonishing things, things that have never been heard before, things that are so profane that no one up until this point would even, you know, even think about those kinds of things to say. You know, as, as my life has gone on, you know, we used to be very careful in school and very careful at places, the things that we would say. Um, you know, even being a good Baptist boy, we didn't even think about saying some things. But the world has come to a place where profanity is just part of everyday life. And, you know, kids are speaking profanity, which is not like it used to be. But it's nothing like the Antichrist and the profane things that he is going to speak. He's going to speak these astonishing things against the God of gods. And he's going to do this until God's wrath comes and uh, destroys him. So he is profane. And then uh, he, he shows the, that uh, his, his attitude towards uh, the Messiah. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He's going to, to you know, prosper. All these things that he's doing, he will prosper. And then he will also um, be perverted. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. It's not normal for us to disrespect our parents and the traditions that we fall under. Um, even if we don't follow in our parents' footsteps, we respect them and we respect the traditions that they have. He's going to pay no attention to the gods of his father. He doesn't love his family. He has no respect for his family. Um, it's not a normal family love that he, he has. And he uh, says here that there's also uh, the one beloved by women. Uh, the desire of women is what the King James says. Um, this could mean that, that he's a homosexual. Or it could mean that uh, he just doesn't respect women. Um, he's not going to you know, be gracious. He's not going to have an appreciation of women. He has no capacity for a normal relationship with women or affection for the family, his mother or his sister. He's perverted in that particular way. And he certainly doesn't have any regard for God. He shall not pay attention to any other God. He shall magnify himself above all. So he's perverted. There's no family love. There's no love for women, and there's no love for God. If anyone like this, you know, 10 years ago wanted to run for public office, uh, you know, as mayor of Toronto, you wouldn't even allow that person's name probably to get on the ballot. But the world has changed, and the world will continue to change. And this man who is going to stand up as the Antichrist, he's going to be more perverted than anyone else that, uh, that we have ever seen. And his character in the fifth sense then is also going to be marked by power. Verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. Normally you take things to, 
to, to your God and, and you place them there, the precious things. We bring our offerings to the Lord on a regular, on a regular basis. In place of, of him worshiping other gods, his worship is power, military power. And war is expensive, and he's going to use all the resources that he has, all the silver, all the gold, all the precious things, to build his war machine, because that what is what he worships, is power. Everything that is valuable, that normally would be laid uh, before God, is taken and is going to build his war machine. Look at verse 39. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. He is going to take over the earth. He is going to be so powerful that he is going to win it all. And he's going to keep gaining more and more powerful positions. And to sustain that position, what he's going to do is if you you know, enter into an agreement with him, he is going to honor you. He is going to load honor with those who follow him. And not only that, he's going to divide up the world that he conquers. And he's going to give people, rulers, over certain sections of the world. As long as they follow him, he's going to say, here's your honors and here's your land. And you are my puppets. You are the people that will administer this under my authority. He will take the earth and he'll keep giving to those who recognize him. People in, in positions of leadership. He'll give possession for the land. But it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Because there's going to be conflict. Verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horses and with many ships. He's going to do all right. It looks like he's won the whole show. He's going to take over the whole earth. But dominating the earth is a, is a, is a hard thing to continue. It's a hard thing to, to maintain. Revolution is going to take place. The king of the south and the king of the north is going to say, it's time, we've had enough. And they're going to fight against him. He can't keep it all together. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. They're going to raise up, rise up in revolution and the Antichrist is going to sweep through their lands. He's going to win. Talking about the Antichrist, he will overcome those who are attacking him. Verse 41, he shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of, out of uh, his hand. Edom and Moab in the main part of the Ammonites. Again, interesting that God puts that in there for us. Edom and Moab are going to escape this. Why are they going to escape this? Well, there's nothing in, Edom, there's nothing in Edom and Moab. Uh, we're talking about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Uh, Edom and Moab are a little bit to the southeast, and there's nothing there except camels. And he's just going to avoid that. So, you know, God says, you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, tidbit for you that they're going to escape. Uh, he shall stretch out his hand against the, the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. He wipes out the northern army and the southern army and the Arab countries and even into Africa. And again, he is victor. They rise up against him, and he wins the first test of his world domination. But 
verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote uh, many to destruction. The armies will regroup, and they're going to attack him again, and he's going to win again, verse 45, and he shall pitch his uh, palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountains, yet uh, he shall come to his end with none to help him. There is no match for the Antichrist until the end comes. And the end comes, as we already saw in, in chapter 12 of Revelation, when Christ says enough is enough and he wins the battle. And so he comes to an end. And then remember that in the scriptures uh, originally there was no chapter divisions. Uh, so we, you think that when we come to the end of 11, that's the end of the story. Uh, but it's not the end of the story because there's three more verses that are still talking about the Antichrist and, and what's going on. Uh, so verse 12, uh, verse 1 of, of, of chapter 12, it says, At that time shall arise Michael. Now that's not after this when the Antichrist is dealt with. He shall come to his end with none to help him. But what this is saying is at that time when this is going on, Daniel says here's another piece of the story. Here's something that's overlapping. Because one of the things that the Antichrist is going to face is Michael. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Um, so this is happening not immediately after, but happening at the same time in verses 36 to 40, 45. It means that the angel Michael is going to be involved in this activity that, that's taking place. Now Michael is, is one that is identified in scripture as an archangel, as a chief angel. You've, we've already seen him in chapter 10 and verse 13 and chapter 10 and verse 21. He's referred to in Jude and we've already heard him being referred to this morning in the scripture reading in Revelation chapter 12. Michael is called the archangel in Jude. He is Satan's true opposite. Sometimes we think the battle is against Satan and Christ and that's not true. Because Christ is not the equal to Satan. The equal to Satan is Michael. And Christ is overpowerful of, of overall. The, the one who is fighting against the Antichrist, the one who's fighting against Satan, is Michael. He is the opposite of, of, uh, of the Antichrist. Michael has a special job in protecting Israel, in watching over Israel. Um, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen there uh, was a nation till that time. This refers to the time of persecution known as the Great Tribulation. Also, the time of Jacob's trouble from Jeremiah chapter 30. Um, the Jewish people are known for having experienced all kinds of trouble down through history. From the horrors that happened when Samaria and Jerusalem fell, uh, to the terrors that were wrought by them by Antiochus Epiphanes, to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, to the persecutions of the Jews by the Christians during the Dark Ages, and in the 20th century, the Holocaust that, that took place in the Second World War. A time of trouble is coming, but a time of trouble that has never been seen before like it has already taken place. This will be worse trouble than they have ever seen before. 
And Jesus refers to this in that Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. He says, for, there, uh, for then there will be a great tribulation such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time no one uh, nor ever shall be. The worst, Daniel, is still to come. You thought it was 70 years. You thought from the prophecy so far that God was going to chasten his people because he wanted to purify them. He wants to bring them back. But it's not all that's going to happen. There is a great tribulation that's going to come. There are still things that are going to happen to them. And that's what you read as we read in the scripture this morning from Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. All those things are going to take place. This is the outpouring of God's wrath. This is the, the seven seals and the seven bowls that are going to be poured out. It tells us how terrible the things are going to be and how, um, how stretched the people of God are going to be. And uh, two-thirds of Israel is going to be destroyed. Um, and as the trumpets sound, all these things are going to take place. This time of tribulation is going to be terrible, something like you've never seen before in the history of the world. An upheaval, a judgment of God. And why? Because God loves his people and he's trying to bring them back. He's trying to refine them in the fire. He's allowing this to happen to them so that they will come to him and they will recognize the Messiah. But there's hope. It's not all doom and gloom. The scripture goes on, but at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That's not that all Israel will be saved. It's all people whose name is written in the book. Despite the terrors of that time, deliverance is assured. Um, the way to get through hard time is to have hope. The way to get through times of, of trial and tribulation is to have hope. Time, uh, lots of studies have been done about people who have been, been taken prisoner in, in wars and have been locked up as, as prisoners, and what got them through was hope. Those that didn't have hope died, but those that had hope persevered to the end. No matter the great uh, attack upon the Jewish people, God promises to, to preserve them. There will be a remnant. The promise of the remnant, those whose names are going to be written in the book, those who are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. So we have a resolution and a res resurrection, verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This refers to the resurrection of the body in general and the Scriptures are clear about a resurrection that takes place. In fact, it talks about two resurrections that are going to take place, the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the damned. And here, Daniel is receiving word that there is going to be this resurrection. But the resurrection for those that aren't trusting in the Messiah, that aren't following after God, that's not going to be a time of, you know, some, some sorrow and then a, a blissful annihilation. That's a, an evil theology that's seeping into our church in Canada and around the world. That people will be annihilated after some aspect of going to hell. That's not what the scriptures say. The terror of hell never ends. That's what the scripture says. 
Revelation 20.10 says that uh, at, at the end, there's going to be the punishment of the devil and the Antichrist. They're going to be thrown into the pit, into the fire forever. But not for the righteous. Verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Despite the calamity and the difficult time that is coming for Israel, God says, those who are wise, they shall shine like those who turn, they shall shine, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now that may refer to the 144,000 if you're you know, up on your, on your eschatology. It may be something else. It may be those evangelists who are, are witnessing during this time of tribulation. Um, as you continue your eschatological studies, you can put that into place. But the point is that those who follow after the Messiah, those who trust in Jesus, those who are converting others, who are bringing others to faith in Christ, they shall shine like those, uh, like the stars. And that's exciting. That's the good news. There is a judgment that is coming, but there is also a blessed reward for those who follow after Christ. There's a resurrection that's going to take place. Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived is going to stand before the great white throne, and they are going to be judged, and they're either going to be judged and be given entry into eternal uh, bliss with, with, with Christ forever, or they're going to be ushered into a Christless eternity for all time until there is no end. Three lessons, three things that we can learn from this morning. One, that God is in control of everything. Every detail, every ruler, all of the things that take place are within his plan and purpose. And in the first half of this particular vision, we have seen, his, proven in history, that the liberals, as, as Pastor Kevin shared last week, the liberals don't accept this as prophecy because it is so historically accurate. Yet for us, we can say it's so historically accurate because God has given Daniel this particular prophecy and it's true. And even though from verse 36 forward is history that still has to take place, we can be sure that it is going to take place because we know that the first part took place. And we can trust God's word. God controls everything and he is in control of his story. Second of all, God will purge his people Israel. There is coming, there's coming a day for Israel where what they have faced so far is nothing like they're going to face. And why? Because God loves his people. And God wants to see his people come to himself. And it's going to take this terrible thing that we've looked at this morning to bring them back to himself. And finally, they will fall on their knees and they'll recognize him as the true Messiah and follow after him. God will purge his people. And just like this promise for Israel, God purges us. We are his children. He will discipline us because he loves us. If we're choosing to walk a life that is not in obedience to his will and we're doing things that he knows, that we know that we ought not to be doing, don't be surprised if God disciplines you. David, after he sinned with Bathsheba and after he had the illegitimate son, in, in, in the psalm, he says, God's hand was heavy upon me. It made my bones waste away. And God will bring his hand of heaviness upon you because he loves you. 
If you're one of his and you're not following after him, don't be surprised if there's trials and tribulations that come into your life because he wants you to come back to him. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to be close to him. And thirdly, the world will end in a holocaust, but Christ will triumph over that and all will be well for the saints of God. The end story is the resurrection will take place and we will dwell with him for eternity. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Are you walking with him? In our closing hymn, can you truly sing from your heart, it is well with my soul. If it's not, get things straight. Come to him this morning and say, Lord, forgive me for the way I've been living. Forgive me for, you know, the things that I've been doing. I want to walk with you. I want it to be well with my soul. And if you don't know Christ, then come to him this morning. He loves you and his arms are outstretched for you to come into his family so that even if he doesn't come back before you die, you'll be part of that resurrection. Your body will be given, you'll be given a new body and you'll spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank